Do you ever just get home from a really nice night out where you've been talking to your friends and eating good food and making good conversation and think, I want to rant to a group of people on the internet whose names and faces I do not know or recognize about Harvey Weinstein and September 11. For some weird reason, that's where my head has been at this week. Before I get into Harvey Weinstein and September 11, though, which I know sounds really fucking dire, but please don't switch off. I'm going to try and make it interesting and fun, and I think I can. Before I get into that, welcome to another episode of the Home A Half Hour. Thank you for listening. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back again. You will have noticed, probably if you've been paying attention, that these episodes keep coming out on random days. I think the last one was a Saturday, the one before that was a Sunday. I'm going to try my best you know, to, 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 to formalize this, to make it regular. Uh, probably put it out on a Monday or something, because for some reason you people have a thing about weekdays. But... Also, I want to say, you know, uh, life is uncertain and you just, uh, you have to learn to deal with confusion and irregularity. And, uh, and I think that's one of the best skills that you can develop. So if I'm helping you to do that by just being completely irregular, then not only is that helpful for you, it's also a fair representation of where my life is at. This week I'm moving house, uh, which is a lot as anyone who's moved house knows more than that. I currently have about four different jobs. I work for four different people on four different projects and each of them pays me a small amount of money. Through all of them, I make up one livable wage, basically. And that's kind of the nature of uh, where the workforce is at in the Western world at this time. I'm casualized. I'm torn between different competing priorities. And so my life is kind of a flexibilized mess. And it's on me to manage that. Some would have you believe that's a that's a sign of freedom. To me, it just feels incredibly stressful and disorienting. So if I get to pass some of that along to you in the irregularity of this podcast, then I feel what I'm just passing along is some kind of realistic appraisal of the way the world is right now. So you're welcome. And the other little bit of housekeeping that I have is, uh, is we have a Patreon account for Homer and there are a few people on there who are great. You know, they send us a little bit of money each month and we use that to pay our writers. We haven't actually used that for really anything else yet, but we hope to put it towards recording equipment for this podcast, paying people to appear at live events for Homer and paying people to appear on this podcast in future is something that I would love to do. And until recently, I haven't put any effort really into incentivizing becoming a patron of Homer through our Patreon page, but I'm going to change that. I'm going to start putting up sort of album liner notes, I guess you could kind of call them for each episode of our podcast. I'm going to stick those up, show you sort of like where my thinking comes from, give you resources if you like this podcast that you can follow up on, read more deeply into. I'm also going to put out some coupon codes on our Patreon page because we, we, we've just had a hundred tote bags made and the design on the totes is by this fantastic artist 
named uh, Samuel Leighton Dorr. And so there's these special edition crossover totes, which are like Homer with Sam, with these great fucking bits of merch that are going to help us pay writers and do cool stuff. And also a special little bit of Sam's work that you get to own and uh, put groceries in and books in or whatever you put in a tote bag. You can put that in there and it will be more special. Uh, so if you if you want a, a slightly cheaper tote bag or if you just want to support us and find out a little bit more about you know what I'm thinking when I make these things, then become a patron of Homer through our Patreon page. I uh, really appreciate that. So how did I, oh my God, how did I end up thinking about Weinstein and September 11 together? Okay, let's start with September 11. I think maybe on September 12, I realized I'd heard nothing about September 11 this year. For the first time since 9-11, since the World Trade Center was attacked, since America, in a sense, existentially speaking at least, was attacked uh, from without, <laughs> which makes a big difference. This was the first September 11 where that day did not in any way, you know, and I, and I checked the news pretty regularly, did not in any way make reference to 9-11, which is remarkable. You know, it's been only 18 years since that happened. And yet still it wasn't kind of uh, talked about, reflected on, on that day. And on September 12 or 13 of this year, whenever I was, that I realized I'd gone through my first September 11 without thinking about 9-11, I was really disconcerted. Because that event has completely redefined my life. I was 13 years old when it took place. And I remember, as many people will exactly where I was when it took place. I was in the UK and they basically called off the day at school. You know, I was at this English public school and kids started saying strange things to each other in the middle of the day. And then when we all got home, you know, my parents had the television on and there was the footage of these two towers being struck by planes. And ever since, I feel like our world, and especially our conceptions of what the desirable masculinity of a leader is, have been completely defined by that event and responses to it. In the immediate wake of that event, you had George W. Bush becoming this incredibly macho cowboy, vengeance and justice, son of a bitch which is kind of exactly what America seemed to be thirsting for. And you had politicians who, until that point, while they might have presented themselves as moderates, immediately signed up to this same model of masculinity, this unilateral, brook-no-argument political masculinity. It ushered in an era of protectionism, of... Western countries' borders, surveillance of our own citizens, punishment of people who deviated from what we felt was safe, and especially who deviated from what we thought of as us. You know, whether that was religiously, linguistically, or ethnically. It was an us-versus-them era 
that this ushered in in an incredibly stark format. And our leaders took on this kind of persona of dad knows best. You know, like John Wayne meets your comforting father's knee. It was bizarre. And I don't think that we've ever really recovered from that. In fact, I know that we haven't. Every political leader, at least that Australia has had, and I would definitely go so far as to say the US and the UK are the same, has had to pay lip service to this idea that they will protect and surveil and punish in order to keep their constituents safe. It's sort of a masculinity as crisis management. Not masculinity as caretaking, not masculinity as deep thought, reflection, restraint. Masculinity as taking care of business, being willing to make tough decisions, putting our people before their people. As though the world is a constant state of crisis, and if you can't demonstrate that you're willing to be inhumane to an extent, then you're not cut out to be a man leading a nation. So there's definitely an argument to be made that that 9-11 through crisis revealed not just the the normative gender expectations of the leaders of the day, but our normative gender expectations. And it also was a test of character, I think, of everyone in a leadership position, politically speaking, during that time. It took an enormous strength of will to say no, to be compassionate, to resist this instinct to punish and surveil and invade and seek retribution. Even in Australia, Kevin Rudd made incredibly inhumane decisions against the interests of people seeking refuge in Australia in order to kind of tap into this vein that that was what was right. And the same is true of Barack Obama in the United States. He continued extraordinarily inhumane and extrajudicial programs of killing and assassination and bombing to carry on this legacy of masculinized state-making. What this all misses is that even if you have power, you can't change the irresolute state of the world. Being attacked by terrorists is an incredibly existentially threatening thing to happen to a nation-state. But to then seek a sense of security in attacking others, attempting to impose order on those others, is to seek power in a fundamentally illusory manner. Whatever power you find in imposing your will on others will inevitably slip through your grasp. Because the world cannot be wrestled into a reasonable state of being. It won't. What's really interesting about this period where the masculinity of political leaders became masculinity as crisis management, as the constant wrestling with the state of the world into submission, is that the idea that masculinity itself is in crisis also came back into vogue. 
I say back into vogue very advisedly, because the idea that masculinity is in crisis is in fact a historical norm to an extent. There's a fantastic book written by Barbara Ehrenreich in 1987. It was called The Hearts of Men, American Dreams and the Flight from Commitment. I strongly recommend it as a study of contemporary trends in masculinity. And in it, she talks about how masculinity has been constantly in crisis pretty much throughout the middle and late 20th century. She talks about Hugh Hefner's popularizing of the playboy model, which was there as a response to the insecurity of the institution of the family and the rise of men's liberationists, this idea that there was a mask that men were wearing and they could take it off and rid themselves of masculinity's destructive qualities for the first time. And she really polishes off her thinking about masculinity in the 20th century in an incredibly satisfying way when she points out the sort of commodification of masculinity in the late 70s and through into the 80s when she actually started writing the book. There's this great quote that she has towards the end of the book. So this is kind of her characterization of the men's liberation movement as it existed at the time that she was writing. She says, If this movement has had a vision, it has usually been a commoditized one. Liberation as cocktails and Picasso prints in a bachelor apartment. Liberation as tie-dyed shirts and fine wine. Or as $60 running shoes and Adidas shirts. And, if this movement has had a sustaining sense of indignation, it has more often been directed against women rather than against the corporate manipulators of tastes and dictators of the work routine. I mean, that quote in and of itself is just fucking gold. And that's 1987. I would say certainly not much has changed since then. The nature of the crisis has not changed, and the nature of the response also has not changed. What men describe as a crisis is in many ways an opportunity to engage with the genuine structural difficulties of the way society is constructed. Instead, what men often do, which kind of reveals the fundamental conservatism of gender norms and norms generally, is treat this situation as a crisis for masculinity itself. Masculinity rallies to protect itself in its current form, rather than thinking, well, if this isn't working, maybe our conception of what is masculine wasn't right in the first place. So I guess bringing this back to 9-11, every crisis is in some sense a fork in the road between, on the one hand seeking to impose your will on the world, on the universe, even on your little corner of the universe, so that you feel that you can make it explicable and understandable for yourself. And on the other hand, accepting that things are fundamentally irresolute, that they will never be as you want them to be, and that the fundamental principles that you wish to live by, be they, in my case, Something like compassion and empathy, recognizing the common decency of all humankind, that those, however difficult they are to reconcile to the crisis in which you find yourself, are the values which should be adhered to more than ever 
in a situation of crisis. And here is where, <laughs> here is where I try to link this to Harvey Weinstein. So if you didn't hear about it, last week sometime, I can't remember exactly on what day, uh, Harvey Weinstein turned up to a New York comedy club. And he rolled in with a little entourage and he sat in a booth in the back. And um, this simple fact of him putting himself in a public space, and in case you need reminding, he's out on bail, a million dollars bail, currently facing charges of, well, a whole bunch of really dark shit culminating in rape, but by no means limited to it. His crimes are legion if allegations are to be believed, and I fucking believe him. So, yeah, he's out on bail as probably the most notorious sex predator on the face of the fucking planet, and he shows up to this New York comedy club, and this woman, who has since gone viral, Kelly Bachman is her name, she's a comedian, and, you know, other other women at the comedy club are another woman named Zoe Stuckless, and, and uh, I can't remember the name of the third woman, but yeah, this, this comedian, Kelly Barkman, called him out in her stand-up set. <laughs> I mean, the words that she used were, you know, she wanted to confront the elephant in the room. The Freddy Krueger, I think she said, in the room. And as soon as she started shining a light on him, this really interesting and kind of sickening phenomena occurred. You know, like you can see during this one-minute clip of her kind of calling him out for being there and being like, it's fucked up that he's here. It's fucked up that this venue is like cool with him being here. You hear this dude shout from the back of the room, you know, some guys booing. One guy shouts out, you know, shut up. And and then other women at this comedy club go up to, to Weinstein in this booth and confront him and say, you know, like, it's not cool that you're here. What the hell are you doing? And they get kicked out. They get asked to leave this comedy club. And then after they left, this male comic gets up and kind of riffs on what Kelly Bachman was saying. And, you know, where she calls out Weinstein as the elephant in the room, he kind of says, you know, okay, let's talk about the elephant in the room. How many of you guys uh, produced Goodwill Hunting? You know, that's his, that's his kind of retort to what are now, I think, more than 80 accusations of rape and sexual harassment leveled at this man is to say, right, but how many of you made Goodwill Hunting? Like, that's somehow equal or that it neutralizes it? I feel like there's something about the way that that guy responded to this situation and the way that dude in the back of the room who's yelling out, shut up, responded to this situation, that is not so dissimilar from this kind of masculinity as crisis management mentality that has dominated the Western world for the last 20 years. Like, in order to cope with something like 9-11, you have to be able to countenance a seismic blow to your worldview. Suddenly people are so fucking unhappy 
with the way the world works under a Western, imperial, white-centered worldview, a patriarchal white Western worldview, that they are willing to get into fucking planes, fly across oceans, and commit mass suicide just to take out two to three thousand of you. Like, in order to countenance why someone does that, you have to completely change the way, at least as a Western imperial government, you see and interpret the world. And what we witnessed post 9-11 was an absolute inability to do that. Instead, you get this retrenchment. I'm going to be macho. I'm going to be patriarchal. I'm going to be unapologetically imperialist. I'm going to go and hunt these people down and impose my worldview on them, impose our worldview on them, because if it was ever right, it's right now. And that's exactly what these motherfuckers in this comedy club are doing. It's the exact same thing. Like, when you think about, when I think about the kind of emotional and psychological ramifications of the Me Too movement, of watching all of these men who I thought were decent and humane and who had healthy relationships with people and healthy ideas about about women, watching them be revealed as these abusers, predatory manipulative abusers is really actually, frankly, fucking shocking to me. Like, like certainly that reveals my naivety, but that's neither here nor there. This blow to my worldview is really quite startling. If you're really digesting the implications of the Me Too movement, then not only are you watching and thinking about the men who are taken down by it, who are revealed, rightly revealed, and sanctioned by the Me Too movement, you are also thinking differently about men. All men. Forever. Every single one of them should have been brought into question for you. And that's a really... That's a, that's a huge blow to your worldview if you, like me, have had this sense that the men you admire are good men. Because it seems, honestly, by the odds, that they're not. And even before the Me Too movement, but certainly since, I have reflected on my own behavior and found myself wanting So the implications of the Me Too movement are kind of like psychologically and emotionally massive for somebody who's never countenanced the possibilities that the Me Too movement has revealed to be probabilities. And what you get if you have this inflexible crisis management masculinity what you get is, is this shut up, is just shut up, because I don't want to have to fucking deal with it. I'm going to impose this reasoning on my little fucking corner of the world where 
Goodwill Hunting is a great movie, and the guy who made it is a great man, and everything else is just allegations, and that's all there is to it, and you know, we're going to go on evidence, and science, and all these hard, rigid, explicable things, as opposed to testimony, and feeling, and the weight of moral suasion, because to really... Engage with those things is to give yourself up to the fact that you cannot ever understand the world or impose order on it in any durable way. The only meaningful way to make your way through it is to feel out what is true, not shut yourself down to it. During the taping of this episode of the Homer Half Hour podcast, I've been drinking the Rock Hopper IPA by Capital Brewing Co. This is also a Canberra brewery uh, and a good one. I really like their Rock Hopper IPA, actually. It's very pleasant. It's, uh, it's clean and strong. It's nice and hoppy with good malt. Who knows? Maybe, excuse me, Maybe in time, I can uh, try and get a beer sponsor on for this uh, this podcast. I would be pretty fucking into that. Hey, Capital, if you're listening, Ben spoke. What's up? Come say hey. Right, so I feel like I've successfully linked Harvey Weinstein in September 11 and, and thereby addressed two topics that people are just terribly comfortable with and really enjoy hearing talked about. So, you know, what would a podcast about Weinstein and uh, September 11 be without uh, reference to toxic masculinity as well? This isn't necessarily related. I don't know if this will come back back around to Weinstein and 9-11. But, um, but I, just have kind of a, I just have kind of a beef with toxic masculinity because at the same time that, you know, uh, masculinity is in crisis... Masculinity as crisis management is kind of how the political world is working. It's the same period in which this term, toxic masculinity, has become kind of the principal term for figuring out what's wrong with men. And I don't really think it's very helpful. So, first of all, my main beef with toxic masculinity is that it lacks definition. As a term, it's kind of something that people... Whichever perspective they're taking on the way that men behave, they tend to just kind of pick out bits that they think are unhealthy or that they even personally dislike and just kind of label them part of toxic masculinity. Even sort of people who I think would generally be considered key voices on the issue of toxic masculinity, like Clementine Ford, for example, don't seem to have a kind of consistent definition of toxic masculinity. Like, I I went to see Clementine Ford launching her latest book, Boys Will Be Boys, in October last year. So, yeah, about a year ago. And the definition of toxic masculinity that she gave at that book launch was toxic masculinity are the elements... It's the elements of masculinity that are weaponized in a patriarchal society. So that's an interesting definition, but at the same time, people use toxic masculinity to describe 
alcohol abuse, violence, self-abuse, drug abuse, sexual violence, suicide, non-help-seeking behaviour. Toxic masculinity really can be applied as kind of a catch-all to just all the things that men are doing that are bad for other people and bad for themselves. And that is kind of useful to focus in on the fact that men are really doing themselves no favours through those behaviours. They're also, on top of that, doing extraordinary amounts of physical and psychological damage to others. However, this term, toxic masculinity, by definition, locates the fault in those behaviours in gender only. Not just that, it links them to public health, legal and safety-related issues, things that you can supposedly work on if you have more police enforcement or better hotlines, better funding for women's domestic violence crisis services and women's shelters. I remember there was a teacher of mine at university who sort of said, under neoliberalism, we work on what we can work on. It doesn't sound like a scathing description, but in a way it really kind of is. You know, when you boil down the symptoms of what is called toxic masculinity, you're left with violence, suicide, sexual violence, self-abuse. And there's a perception that in each of these cases, health services or non-governmental organisations, or better funding, will somehow be able to reduce each of these phenomena without you ever having to sort of question how those become symptoms of normative masculinity. Masculinity, remember, and this will always be my position, does not arise in a vacuum. Our idea of what a man is or even bugger our idea, the fact of what a man is under masculine gender norms is a symptom of the way that society is organised and what it prioritises and deprioritises. So while it's certainly true that many of the behaviours that the term toxic masculinity targets, which do tend to be these primarily health-related issues, whether that's, you know, physical or mental health. While these do, in large part, have a lot to do with gender norms and how men respond to them, embody them, and enact them, it is also true, and I would say far more helpful, to try and find ways of understanding how these are not just responses to gender. These are responses to power imbalances in society that have to do with class with race, with the availability and effectiveness of healthcare and education, with the distribution of wealth, to label this vast array of social phenomena, toxic masculinity, is to make yourself feel that you see something and understand something that you don't. That is in many ways incredibly difficult to understand and even more difficult to work on and reform. 
Because if you accept that it's not just about what is masculine and it's not just about gender norms, then you're faced with this wall of realizations that involves reforming society as we know it. And that's much less comfortable. People from across the political spectrum are not necessarily going to get together around that when they can simply point at masculinity as the problem. But if that label is not right, if that's not what's actually going on, if it doesn't cover off the entirety of that set of behaviours and what they originate in and how they are perpetuated, then it's just no use. In fact, it provides a false sense of security, a false sense of progress. And that is in many ways more dangerous than no progress at all. I mean, it's really interesting that the term toxic masculinity won't dare stretch itself to include things like waging war, like the systematic exclusion of indigenous people from systems of representative democracy. You know, there's a little bit of talk about how ignorance of climate change and unwillingness to act on climate change has to do with masculine gender norms, but that's that's about it. That's about as brave a theoretical leap as people have been willing to make with the term toxic masculinity. Otherwise, it's just related to these negative interpersonal public health issues. And I think part of the reason for that is that toxic masculinity as a term would undermine itself, would demonstrate its its theoretical shortcomings, its actual straight-up inapplicability in many situations, if it were to try and countenance all the ways in which men who consider themselves masculine are doing extraordinary damage in a global political sense, an environmental socio-political sense. I'd love it if we started thinking about it as like a label you would slap on the head of a guy who, though he has never raised a hand to a woman, will not be drinking himself into a stupor, is not likely to commit suicide, may yet still be engaged in, for example, the inhumane detention of hundreds of refugees, the extrajudicial killing of strangers in foreign countries, the denial of aid and autonomy to indigenous peoples. Like, if you want to talk about toxic masculinity, that's the fucking apex of toxicity. So basically what I'm saying, I guess, is that if we really want to talk constructively about toxicity in our society, we can't limit ourselves purely to gender because it's not the only way that people are constructed. In fact, that's offensively reductive to think that I am literally just a gendered being. Nobody would want to be reduced solely to their gender. I am a product of my race. I am a product of my education. I'm a product of my class. And to just point at an aspect of myself, like the fact that Maybe I drink more than I should, or that I occasionally objectify women in an unhealthy way and say, that's just a result of my gender, 
is really not doing justice to the complexity of the way that our society is organized and how that contributes to the way that we're formed as individuals. And I would rather have that long, complex, often unrewarding and unsatisfying and confusing, and here's that word that I've been using a lot, irresolute battle, than give myself up to a feeling that I've answered a question that may take my entire life to answer. Because questions that take your entire life to answer are the right questions. I don't know. I'm not without reaching for certainty at times. I will absolutely, and I have. But still, I do think there are some things that are worth acknowledging are complex. And the way men behave and the influences that lead to that behavior is, to my mind, definitely one of those questions. And shit, that's what I'm doing here. That's this podcast. If that's what you're into, then I promise that's what you're going to get time and time again from this podcast with my compliments. So there you have it. Harvey Weinstein, September 11, and toxic masculinity, all in one episode. I'm going to do my best to make the next just a little lighter on. I promise. Thank you for listening to another episode. If you want to get at me about this, uh, you can do that on Twitter. You can find me, Ashley Thompson, at that Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N, that Thompson on Twitter. You can find Homer at this is Homer on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. And if you just want to send me an email, which I would love to get and I will absolutely respond to, the email address is editor.homer.com at gmail.com. Give me any thoughts that you have about this podcast, about masculinity, about what's going on in the world, and uh, and I'll engage with you critically, personally, deeply, genuinely. I will. And um, yeah, have a, have a lovely week. Thank you so much for paying attention to this uh, strange thing that I keep doing in my bedroom. Good night.